Well, like I said, we're in this new series called One Another, uh, which I said last week is, is really just a, a, a series on relationships. If you weren't here, you can go back and look at that, or at least part of the sermon. Uh, I think we cut out halfway through, so the online is just my beginning and my end, and maybe that's fine. <laughs> so, um, but I looked at this, we looked at this passage what, that Jesus um, in John 13 kind of frames out the one another's of, this, of the Bible, which uh, he says, love one another. That's a new command he gave in John 13. So we talked a little bit about that. And the invitation in the Gospels and in the New Testament um, for us to... Uh, kind of one another, one another. If to, I know that's kind of a weird phrase to say, but um, this idea that in the, in the story of God, the, the primacy of relationships, um, our relationship with God as a community and our relationship to each other, that we're created for relationship is kind of the, the thrust of this series. Um, and we know that we know uh, from our own stories as well as from Scripture, if you read it as a story, that relationships are, having said that, are difficult. It's really hard to be in relationship. Um, and they involve pain. And that the absence of relationship, when there are seasons or days or weeks or months or whatever it might be, sustained periods of time like we've just come through, that the absence of relationships can be catastrophic. Um, they can be really life-changing in some ways. Um, there was this article in the Harvard Gazette uh, just this summer that I read that talked about, and this isn't going to be really news to you, it's just an illustration, uh, the impact the pandemic has had on the mental health of 18 to 25-year-olds. And if you've read much about this, you'll know that it's been particularly felt in that demographic. It, it, there was a Kaiser Family Foundation poll in late March that's, that uh, revealed that 45% of, of 18 to 25-year-olds who were surveyed um, reported some sort of mental health effect from the pandemic. So about half of 18 to 25-year-olds are experiencing a, a decrease or a negative impact on their mental health. And that of that 45%, here's the really gut-wrenching thing, 63% have experienced substantial symptoms of anxiety and depression. And then another 19%, 20 have reported a major impact as a, result, as a result of the pandemic. In other words, they have chronic mental health issues now, even suicide. We've seen suicide rates go up in this demographic. Quite profoundly, I see Alicia even nodding because she works with this demographic in her own work. And so, and if you think it's just young people, just think again. There was also a New York Times article published this summer um, alongside this Harvard article that talked about the effects of loneliness and isolation amongst those over 40. So I'm over 40. Welcome to your 40s. <laughs> uh, I just added Spencer, but happy birthday soon, soon, coming up. And that includes, so uh, what they showed in that article was this survey that, was, that showed the, the, the risk of premature death from any cause um, being higher as a result of isolation, much more than smoking, uh, lack of physical activity, the isolation... And we've seen this in uh, studies around incarceration, uh, mass incarceration with people who are in um, solitary confinement. The, the, the impacts of that experience over time are greater than heart disease, stroke, all these things. Um, isolation increases even the risk of dementia by over 50%, they've shown in this, this article. Um, anxiety and suicide is also going up amongst 45 to 65-year-olds as a result of this season. And so I share this not to, like, 
bum you out on a already gray day here in Seattle. <laughs> like, we're already kind of bummed as we anticipate sort of the big dark, you know. But I, I share this because I think it serves as a graphic and real example of what the Bible just says, that it's not good for us to be alone. That's not a statement around solitude. You know, solitude is a, affirmed in Scripture. Jesus often goes out to pray by himself. But as a theological concept, it's just, it's not good for us to be alone. We are created for relationship, and the lack of relationships has catastrophic effects on our lives. And so today, I want to continue to press into what that really means, how we can cultivate relationship with each other, with God, and then bring about God's kingdom here on earth in each other's lives, just like in heaven. Um, And specifically, we're going to look at that exhortation from Galatians 6. We're called to carry or bear one another's burdens, okay? And that exhortation is really based in this reality that there come times in our lives, seasons like the season I just described, maybe even just days, maybe it's a moment where you just don't feel like you can continue. Whether that's continue to have the courage to take the next step of faith in your vocation, maybe it's in a difficult relationship, uh, it's in your finances, uh, you don't know if you can continue. Uh, Or continuing to discern what God might be saying through a particular experience. That could be a good experience. I don't know if this is God or just the Thai food I eat, you know, I, uh, or a difficult experience, you know. You're going through what I've just described, and you're not sure if God's even in that. How could God be in those painful seasons? Or just simply a daily experience. I'm looking out, and I'm seeing a lot of parents here. And, or you're working from home, and it's simply continuing. <laughs> like, how can I do this another day, let alone 15 more years? You know, uh, so how do we move forward when we, when we feel and are so, like we're so burdened and we're tired, we're exhausted? That's, so that's the table, question on the table this morning. And as we think about the question, we're just going to draw a couple observations or, or lessons from this text in Galatians. Um, if you have a bullet and you'll see there's three in there, I took it down to two. You're welcome. So I have a habit of doing this. Like I think that I'm going to be able to do three and then I do two and then I think it works better. So here are the lessons. Our capacity for bearing one another's burdens is tied to our proximity to the burdened. We're going to talk about that, and that's verse 1a. (laughs) We're looking at one verse today, by the way. And then restoration requires vulnerability and gentleness. It says intimacy, but I I switched up to gentleness because it's in the text. And that's verse 1b, okay? So all you need is one verse of the Bible. So our capacity for bearing one another's burdens is first tied to our proximity to the burdened, okay? Okay. And this might just be painfully obvious to you, but let me just say it. It's another way of saying that we have to get close enough to one another in order to see and understand one another's burdens so that we can begin to bear the cost of them. We have to get close enough to one another so we can see and understand one another in order to bear the cost of one another's burdens. Okay, so let me break that down a little bit. First, we have to get close. This letter, uh, written by Paul, was written to a collection of churches, house churches, household churches in the ancient Near East, first century, after Jesus' death. And in that context, uh, that, those household churches, it, people lived in these households in what we might call today thick community. So there's this whole conversation between uh, the distinction between thick community and thin community today. Thin community, just to describe what that is, is... Uh, what we often experience in s- social media spaces. And this is not a criticism of social media, 
but it's where we can like and follow and subscribe to all sorts of things, people, in our own virtual sense, and belong to those communities or to those people's lives. But at the end of the day, you may never have to actually, it may never have to actually involve another human being. You, you, you can go weeks in those spaces, days, months uh, in these networks, social, social networks, without actually ever having an, a conversation. You know what a conversation is, right? It involves questions and answers and, and stories, dialogue, <laughs> too. Yeah, not in social media. Personal interaction, real connection, that's thin community. And again, not a critique of social media. I'm on it. Uh, this is not an indictment of it. It has a purpose and a place, right? But thick community is not that. Like its name, it's dense and closely knit, okay? So in the ancient areas, here's how it looked. Uh, the household, these churches, were really just communities, and the Greek word is this oikos, or extended family. And it, it was not an extended family in the way we might think of it. So, you know, uh, you have a mother-in-law unit, <laughs> right? Or your grandparents come to uh, live with you, uh, and you have maybe a, an aunt or an uncle there as well, or some cousins. Um, that's not this. Uh, instead, this community, the Oikos, is a connection of, a collection of blood and non-blood relationships. So natural family, you know, you'll have grandparents there, certainly, as well as friends, neighbors. So if you think of your block, living in one household, okay, We'd live in a community, yeah. And then people who are, who are your slaves in that, in that time, but you can think of people you work with, okay? Um, so, for example, Paul says, just after this exhortation in verse 10, whenever we have an opportunity, we're called to work for the good of all, especially those in the family of faith. That's the word, he, the oikos word. We're family, as he says elsewhere in Ephesians 2, we're, we're members of the household of God. That's the oikos word. And so what that shows here is, is how the recipients of this letter were very family-oriented in their relationships. This is the community. And they're, therefore, extremely interdependent. There's a sharing of life, uh, deeply connected, which is another way of saying that individualism did not exist in their culture. That would be an anathema to think of the Bible in individualistic terms. Um, you've often heard me say this, but when you find a you, Y-O-U, in Paul's letters, it's y'all. This is why Silas has got it right. It's, it's always a plural. There's never individuals in there. Um, and so what that means is you look at verse 1 here again, where Paul says, brothers and sisters, if, if someone is caught in sin, you, y'all, who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. What he's talking about, think about this. When you're living inside a community I just described, this household, often about 40 to 60 people, okay, how about that? Uh, how is it that someone's going to get caught in sin in that kind of context? And I'm set aside sin, what you think about sin for a moment. Uh, but how is it that person is going to get caught? You have no place to hide. This isn't an apartment building, by the way. Like we think of 40 to 60 people living in their own apartment complex. Some of us did that when we were younger. Some of us do still. Um, this, you didn't have separate living spaces, you know. It was, there was a common space in the middle of this, and I've seen places like this in East Africa. They're, they still exist in the, ancient, in, the, in the Near East now and other parts of the world, but there's a central courtyard, very little private space, very little private space. Often you're sleeping in shared quarters, you know. So there's like no place to hide. Your life just became extremely, extremely observable by everyone there. 
the people you live with. They could see how you live, what you did, which included your habits, included your limitations, your shortcomings, all your failures, all your warts and wounds, right? And so someone who's caught in this context, back to Paul again, who's trapped, literally that's what that word means. It's a, it's a metaphor for an animal trap. If you think of a snare, someone's got their foot stuck in sin, a snare. Sin is not something you just willfully do. Sometimes it is something that's outside of you. This enemy catches you, right? And, and, and you're, you're caught. Um, this is not a situation where you're just walking through like public, the public market downtown or a mall, Northgate or whatever, although Northgate's kind of closed, but you're walking down your neighborhood street and you see someone doing something kind of morally immoral, right? Or illegal. That's not this. You're not going to catch somebody that way. Uh, we might think we should. Like we'll see people driving. I'll do this all the time and they're on their phones and I want to catch them. <laughs> you know, like that's not this. And maybe that's not the best way to approach the situation. Instead, this would have been a situation where someone you're living with in your family is stuck. They're trapped. They're ensnared like an animal, like I said, uh, stuck, trapped in sin. Which practically means that this person is doing something repeatedly uh, over and over and over again because there's this pattern there you have to observe. This is not a one-off event. Uh, it's something you see them doing over and over that they may not see, what we call a blind spot today, perhaps. Um, and, of course, a precondition to seeing each other's blind spots in relationships is that relationships need to be constant. I can't presume to know any of your stuff because I don't live really closely with really many, any of you. I mean, I pointed the Bowens here because we live like a block away from each other, but even there, we're not in proximity. I'm not present enough with y'all to even be able to begin to say what's going on in your life beneath the surface. Does it make sense? So we have to get, we have to be present, close, proximate to use that word. Brian Stevenson, who's the author of that book, Just Mercy, who some of you've read. He, there's also a great movie put out last year with Michael B. Jordan in it, which you, if you don't want to read the book, amazing movie, so you could watch that. He was, a, he's a Harvard-educated lawyer, civil rights activist, um, and through his work, he uses this word proximity a lot. He, his work is, he's founded the Equal Justice Initiative, where he's seeking to exonerate inmates in prisons who've been wrongfully convicted, as well as create a more merciful, as his book suggests, justice system that's humane. There's so many stories in his work of just inhumanity in our justice system today. Whether you're guilty or not guilty, it doesn't matter. Just how we treat each other in that space um, as non-human. And so he wants to create a more merciful way of approaching every person. So he tells this story in his book uh, of how he found his calling. And he uses, this is where he uses that word proximity. Um, and he says, you know, he was in his second year of law school at Harvard. He had become really disillusioned with law, if you can imagine. <laughs> Any of your guys, if you've gone to grad school, you think, ah, I'm going to change the world. And then eh, it's not going to be that. And he, he became disillusioned. And he was thinking about leaving law. So, but he's in his second year, and he had to do this internship, and so he did it. And his internship, he decided it was in Georgia, and it was a, as a paralegal at the Southerner Prisoners Defense Committee. And his first task in this internship, as he tells the story, was to visit this prison where this man was on death row um, that he had to visit named Henry Davis. And uh, he was just 
Brian Stevenson was just 23 years old at the time. So you can imagine, when, as 23, any of you going to death row, and his, he thought his one job, he was told that your one job is to go there, don't mess this up, tell this man that his, sent, his, his execution, he, he's going to be executed, but he has one year left on death row. So there's like a stay of execution, his, but his execution's imminent. You're, you're no more, please, none, none of that. You're going to be executed. If you can, I mean, if you can imagine having to give that news to somebody, how that's going to make you feel, right? And so he does this, and what he doesn't anticipate, what shocks him, what changes the course of his story completely, why the Equal Justice Initiative came about, is that he did not anticipate how grateful Henry Davis would be hearing that news. I've got another year. In fact, he, the, Davis was so desperate to talk to someone and be listened to by someone. It didn't matter if it was an apologetic, inexperienced intern, 23-year-old intern. And that, really, that's the key we're going to get to in a moment, okay? Uh, so Stevenson, he does. He chooses to listen to Davis. He listens to Davis and finds him absolutely relatable. Like anybody he would have walked with in his childhood, in his life, didn't matter that he went to Harvard, and so by the end of the conversation, which, by the way, went way past the one-hour limit, uh, Stevenson realized that what Davis needed the most at that time in his life was not a seasoned lawyer. And whatever vocation you're in, maybe you can just replace it with that. Not a seasoned professor, not a seasoned, <laughs> you know, real estate agent, not a seasoned anything, but a merciful companion. Someone who could, who could be next to him and ready to listen to him and to his humanity, not his condemnation. People need merciful companions. People that can listen to them, to their humanity, not their condemnation. I think a lot of us live with a sense of deep condemnation. And we need others to listen to our humanity. And Stevenson goes on in his book to describe this as proximity. This is what proximity is. He says, proximity to the condemned made the question of each person's humanity more urgent and meaningful to me, even my own. It was like a mirror. And I went back to law school with an intense desire to understand the laws, the doctrines that sanctioned the death penalty, so much so that I could, I could free, help free people for, for them, from that experience. It, became, it all became relevant suddenly by meeting Henry Davis. Proximity to the condemned, to people unfairly judged, that was what guided me back to something that felt like home. Proximity will guide us some, to something, a calling that will feel like home to us. It is the precondition to burden bearing. And it is what will change lives. And this is why God calls us to bear one of those burdens. Because God desires, I mean, God is the God of proximity. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Uh, God wanted to carry our burdens for us, with us, because he wanted to, as Hebrews says, understand us. That's the key to all of this. And I love that another key here is that, that Paul doesn't talk about the specific burdens here. Did you notice that? This isn't about the sinners of the world specifically, the convicts and the condemned. Did you hear that in, in Brian Stevenson's quote? This is about all of us. Stevenson, what he said through his story is that to be human is to be burdened. To be human is to be frail and weak and lonely. To be human is to feel condemnation at a level. And so to bear one of those burdens well, gently as we're going to get to, is to understand that reality. 
to share in weakness, to share in the experience of being burdened. I mean, that's what it means to be proximate, to understand one another. Literally, the word understanding means to stand under something. That's all it means. It means that uh, you get so close to someone else's life, you're literally standing under their life. If you can picture that, you get a new perspective on their life, an appreciation of it, of their humanity. And in sharing that, the call of the gospel that's given to us, the gift that's given to us, is the gift of sharing the burden of that life. And, and can I just say, and, and confess even, just set aside pandemic for a minute here, in isolation and quarantine and all that stuff. We're not very good at this. We've got to face the facts here. We often misunderstand each other quite deeply. Uh, and, and set aside politics <laughs> and all the rancor in that too and social media. Like how many of you, think of yourself for a moment, really know what's going on in the lives of not just your friends and neighbors, but those in this community who are truly suffering. And, and not to minimize any of our suffering, but the unhoused, the refugee, the addicted, the poor. How many of us really understand that? I, I don't. And it's not because I haven't been poor or because I've never been addicted. I think it's because I've never been proximate. I've never gotten close enough to... I think God's given each of us the capacity to understand each other by simply drawing close. Um, what kinds of conversations are you having with others right now? What are you asking each other about is the question this text might bring to us. And we might not be able to get as physically close to each other as we once did. We have to wear masks. You know, you can't even see each other's facial expressions. But how can we nonetheless seek to live this calling out, to bear one of those burdens, to move closer and closer and closer to one another's hearts and stories and pain and suffering, getting so proximate, forming such deep, thick community where, our, yeah, our failures and flaws will be seen and observed by all, and yet our, our burdens will be shared. We'll have confidence in that. So that's number one. Burden-bearing requires proximity. Okay, here's, here's the, number, the second thing I want to say today, is that uh, restoration is companion words. Restoration requires vulnerability and gentleness. Again, not intimacy. Uh, that's a good thing, but gentleness. Uh, so let me unpack those, each of those words as kind of a way of conclusion here. First, vulnerability. Uh, restoration requires vulnerability. Verse 1, second part, you who have received the Spirit, y'all who have received the Spirit, should restore one another in a spirit of gentleness, okay? And here's what I think Paul is saying. This is going to get to the how of, of understanding each other. I talked about kind of the theology of understanding, but here's the how, okay? When we get proximate to each other, how we should then act is kind of what I'm, I want to talk about. The Greek word for restore here that's used is actually a, a word picture for setting a dislocated bone. That's what it means to restore. It's a, it's a, it's a very graphic word picture. And any of you who've experienced, or maybe even those who haven't, because <laughs> you've seen movies, <laughs> a dislocated bone, it's extremely painful not only to have it dislocated because it's not in its designed relationship to the other parts of the body, but to put the bone back. I mean, you can, you can hear it popping, right? Oh, I actually, whenever I, I think of it, uh, this whole word picture, it gives me chills because I've had two dislocated bones, my left shoulder, my left knee, different accidents. I've also broken a lot of bones in my body, and I'm just going to tell you, 
I've had doctors, I've had chiropractors, I've had physical therapists literally lay their hands on me to fix me. And uh, I'm gonna, the, the, the breaking was painful. The fixing was, like, I love those people in the room who do this work. And it's also so painful. Jonathan's smiling because he's a nurse. And so, like, it's painful, the, the work he has to do. It's not just healing. It, it, healing hurts sometimes. Um, fixing, healing is not painless. It's painful at times. And that's what vulnerability is. I just have to say, it's a, it's a really kind of sexy word right now. Uh, and I love Brene Brown and all that stuff. But uh, this, you know, like, it involves on the side of the people who are suffering, the one who's burdened, the one who's stuck or caught, uh, to use Paul's language, a sense of pain. That's the, the literal word vulnerable comes from the Latin word vulnus, which is wound. It's a woundedness that you've come into contact with, that you're aware of. To be vulnerable is to become aware of your own woundedness. Uh, and so practically speaking, if I could just speak to a moment for those of us in the room who ever found ourselves in a position of help, helping others, whether that's your vocation or a calling you feel in your life, of carrying others' burdens, this text is inviting us, is calling us really, it's, it's a beautiful and sacred calling, but it's calling us as we'll talk about it in a moment, to, toward this posture of gentleness. Um, I mean, it's painful to be burdened. It's painful to uh, be aware of your brokenness, to come into an awareness of that. It's hard for those with burdens to trust at times, the burden bearer. There's sometimes shame. Some of you have carried shame your whole life for something that you've been caught in, you know, there's been broken trust. Uh, there's been trauma, you know, around experiences that people have had. I mean, this is why there was this book written a few years ago that we, uh, as I led the mission department at Bethany, that we had everybody required reading for everybody. I think they're still using it uh, whenever somebody participates in a local or global outreach at Bethany. It's called When Helping Hurts. I mean, the title tells you right there. Because in the process of helping people, the reality is, as a church, as churches, We've often done considerable harm. Uh, I mean, this is true in governments. This is true in societies, communities, the church. Uh, like, to live this calling of burden-bearing out, the irony is we've just done immense irreparable harm sometimes to people's lives, which is why God calls us to gently restore those who are burdened. So do you know what the word gentleness means? Gently. Uh, you know, back in August, I preached on this, so I'm not going to rehash that. I think you can get it online. We were in a Fruit of the Spirit series, and so I talked about that, Fruit of Gentleness. But here's really a summary of what I said. I said gentleness is unambiguous accessibility. It is uh, extraordinary approachability. Gentleness is unambiguous accessibility and extraordinary approachability. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 11, this great invitation to us where he said, Come to me. There's the invitation. All you who are weary and burdened, same word, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, from gentle and humble of heart. This is the only place in the Bible where God describes his very own heart to us. He's gentle. He has no other posture toward us. And the invitation is just to come. He's approachable, unambiguously approachable, accessible. He wants to be in relationship to us. 
We're invited to come without conditions, prerequisites, requirements. Maybe the only requirement is that you accept the fact that you have a burden that you need to share. And so to be gentle is to be accessible and approachable. That's it. Now, how might that look? Just given this call that we're given by Paul to restore one another's gently. Um, Let me get really practical here and give you two things maybe to take home as assignments, okay? Uh, Because it's easy to think about this in really kind of abstract sense. Be more gentle. (laughs) You know, like, okay, what do I do? And I want to give you a couple things to practice. So the first thing I think is it begins with prayer. Again, we're talking about accessibility and approachability. Uh, There's this great saying from one of the desert fathers in the 5th century named uh, Nihilus of Sinai. Um, Not Silas of Nainai, but Nihilus of Sinai, uh, who said this, prayer is the seed of gentleness in the absence of hostility. That's a really mysterious thing you could see only a desert father saying as they sit out in their little cave. Uh, It's a little confusing to me, but I love it anyway. And here's what I think it means. When Nihilus of Sinai said that prayer is the seed of gentleness, why do you say that? What does that have to do with gentleness? Well, here's what I think. I think it's because when you pray, like if you, get out, if you can picture praying on your knees, which is a classic posture for prayer. Some of it, sometimes we bow our heads. Uh, oftentimes we close our eyes, palms up. How are you, whatever prayer posture is common to you. When we pray, we get our posture right before God. Prayer is a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of, in prayer that we could talk about, but really a lot of prayer begins with our posture. We change our typical posture that we're in the world. You could stand and pray, but a lot of our posture is standing and, and engaging and moving. And, or if you're on a computer all day, in my case, it's preaching and speaking. <laughs> prayer is not inviting me to preach or speak at God. It's about getting into a different posture. And in that posture, we're literally remembering, I'm not God. <laughs> I'm not in charge of my life. God is. I'm not, I didn't create this world. I don't sustain this world. God does. And I, and translate this to people, I'm not in charge of this person's life either. God is. God holds all things together by word of his power, as Colossians tells us. So prayer is posturing yourself before God like that. And sometimes, even physically, you can enter into that posture and, and lead your heart toward a more gentle response toward others. Here's what I mean by that. When you kneel and pray, this isn't the only prayer posture, by the way. But when you kneel and pray, which is a very ancient and common way of praying, it was in the ancient churches and tradition, and if you go to Catholic churches today, there's kneelers there. And the reason for that was it was, in, it was intended to indicate humility. Since ancient cultures, when you went before a noble person, a king, a queen, a rich person, whatever it was, If you were a slave in that culture, this is why Jesus knelt before his disciples, put a towel around him, knelt, because he took on the posture of being a servant in that context. You know, he's eliminating all the distinctions we create between each other. And and so you would kneel. That's what would, and put yourself at the mercy of that noble person, that king, that queen. And you'd even bow your head. You'd expose your neck, which, you know, demonstrated complete vulnerability the most tender part of your body. And by practicing that, that posture of prayer, how that relates into relation, relationships, is profound. If you just think on that for a minute, what you're actually communicating to God 
about others, about who you are. It, it's hard to be proud on your knees. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's hard to be proud with your hands up instead of closed. It's hard to be proud with your eyes closed. Because what's, what's happening there is your body is leading your heart. That's what prayer really is about. It's your body leading your heart. And our hearts need to be led. And so let's just do this this week. Let's just practice praying. It's practice. It's not something you try and get right. We, we, we work at it. Um, let's try and be people who do this. Maybe it's just five minutes a day this week. Um, you know, I'm taking part in this little Ignatian retreat this year where I'm practicing praying an hour a day, five days a week. And it's hard. But I'm just entering into the story of God. I'm meditating on God's presence. I'm practicing these different postures. Part of that's intercession where I'm jotting names, even a lot of your names down, journaling and praying for you. I probably won't share with you what I'm doing, what I'm praying about you, but that's what I'm doing. And I would invite any of you in this room, any of you online, to whether that's a minute a day, five minutes a day, 50 minutes a day, whatever that is, because I believe in the efficacy of prayer to change our hearts. Notice it's not about changing other people. I'm not about trying to change you guys. It's about changing our hearts, making us more like Christ, making us more gentle so that when I engage in relationships, I can be more gentle. And, I, and there might be opportunities there to understand you, to stand under your life, and then find ways to support you. That comes through prayer. That's the first thing. Here's the last thing. Another practice. Uh, and this is really just listening to each other. So I recently saw this quote by a woman named Gail Irwin about gentleness. She says, gentleness is not apathy. We think of gentleness kind of meek, mild, like kind of apathy sometimes. Gentleness is not that, but is an aggressive expression of how we view people. I love that. We see people as so valuable. We deal with them in gentleness. We fear the slightest damage to one who, for whom Christ died. To be apathetic is to turn people over to mean and destructive elements. To truly love people calls to be, calls to be aggressively gentle. I love that. <laughs> aggressively gentle. Uh, aggressive expression of how we view people. That's a striking statement, isn't it? Like, who ever thought of aggressive and gentleness in the same context? And so what does that, what does that mean? I think what she's saying is that gentleness is not a personality trait. It's an active attitude. It's a decision of your will. It's something you decide to do when, you, when you're in relationship with somebody else, to be so other-oriented, uh, to be aggressively other-oriented. And not aggressive in a mean way, by the way. Paul says, restore each other gently. Remember, people who are caught, who are bearing burdens, are oftentimes very aware of that and experiencing a lot of hurt, very vulnerable. So to be other-focused by paying attention uh, by, by, by practicing, like you can practice gentleness by listening, paying such close attention to that other person. You can begin to see and understand them. And, and why I say listening is because in listening, what we're doing is we're, we're relinquishing control. You know, we're communicating that we're not the center of this conversation. We're decentering ourselves. Uh, and we're centering another person, another story. I mean, to listen means you're giving up control of a conversation. That's all it means, of an outcome. And, and real listening, I believe, will always lead toward gentleness. Because when we're really listening, we're surrendering our own opportunity to let our voice be heard and our opinion be heard. 
And we're instead stewarding another person's need and stewarding their, their need to not only be seen and heard, but their need for companionship. Remember that Brian Stevenson quote? Their deep desire for healing and restoration. And can I just say, <laughs> we don't listen well. I don't listen well. I'm not a good listener. It's something I, I need to grow. I want to grow in this. And that's why I'm preaching it to you. <laughs> I think our community could grow in this. Most of our listening is strategizing, I think. Like culturally, we nod our heads. We'll be careful to look in the eye, you know, make eye contact. We've been taught to do that. But deep down, we're often thinking about our response, right? Like it's usually a response that's more about how we're being seen and perceived than what's being shared, right? Like we're not thinking about this person's needs as much as we're thinking about our needs. <laughs> Am I right? And so we need to repent of that and, uh, and ask God to give us ears. This is that verse from Psalm 40, verse 6, where David says, ears you've dug out for me, O God. That's a, that's a repentance scripture. I haven't listened well, God, to you or to others. I want to repent of that. It's about asking God to open our ears so we can listen deeply. So I just want to invite us to try that this week, to pray for the ability to listen <laughs> in a conversation that you might have. And then at least one conversation this week. Pray for the ability to listen. Practice listening. Only listening. Now, if there's two listeners, that's going to be an interesting conversation. I didn't think about that. But that could be cool too. A conversation where there's silence and shared silence. But make it your aim in at least one conversation. Your sole ambition, not to be heard but to hear. Not to communicate but to understand. And in do so, practice gentleness. Move toward a, the calling to bear this person's burden and to offer at the far side of that the gift of restoration. So friends, might we be ever more about this? this? This is what this is really about. Like we don't have opportunities every day of every week, every minute of every day to bear burdens. That's just the truth. These are gifts that come into our lives at moments, in seasons, in certain relationships. Times that we know that we know that we know God's extending to us a chance to be Christ to another. And so I think the work between those moments is practice, cultivating gentleness, practicing prayer, practicing listening to God, to others, so that we could then be those people who offer profound healing restoration. One last thing, real quick. Did you see this? Paul didn't say, bear one of those burdens because I said so, okay? I see a lot of you leaning in like, I don't want you to feel like you have to do these things, prayer, listen, all this stuff, because I'm saying so. Like, wow, Jack is really laying it on thick this morning. Um, Paul didn't say that. Paul said, bear one of those burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. I love that because another way to put that, I heard one commentator when I read this week, put it this week, bear one of those burdens and by doing so, follow in the footsteps of Jesus who bore yours. Bear one of those burdens. Come on in, kids. And in doing so, follow in the footsteps of Jesus who bore yours. I think that's just an invitation to remember this is spirit-led work. Paul says in verse 25 of Galatians 5, since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. This is work the Spirit must lead us in. So let's approach Christ, the one who's most gentle with us, 
Let's remember the promise to come and we'll receive rest. And let's walk in step with the Spirit. Come on in, kids. We just talked about listening to each other. And we talked about sometimes life is really heavy and hard. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. And that we have an opportunity in our families and in this family to share in that hardness, that heaviness. Sometimes life's just fun and you're with your friends. But sometimes you've had a hard day and your parents are there for you or a friend's there for you. We just talked about that. Maybe I could have just said that. <laughs> and now we're just going to pray. So can I pray for all of us now that you're back? Yeah, let's pray. And I'll invite the worship leaders back up. God, we thank you so much that you are supremely gentle with us. And I think again of that promise that you offer to us in the gospel where Jesus just says, come, all of you who are burdened, and I'll give you rest. You promise and offer us rest, God, deep rest, body, soul, and spirit. And all you ask us to do is to come and then to lay down our burdens and so, God, we do that. We, we want to come to you with our hearts and our lives this morning. We give you our weakness, God. We give you our wounds. Some of our wounds are physical, God. We give you our physical wounds. We thank you, God, that you, in your wounding physically, can identify with that. We give you our soul wounds, God. Some of us are emotionally wounded right now. We come to you. We lay these things before you. And we thank you, God, for a community that we can do this in. Make us gentle people, Lord. Shape our hearts like your heart, gentle, humble. Each and every one of us, God, may that be true in these young people's lives and their friendships as well, Lord. Would there be a profound spirit of gentleness on this beloved community? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.